Well, welcome to part five <laughs> of a six-part series called The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful. We have been walking through the stories of three lesser-known Old Testament leaders. Most of you know the Old Testament is the part of the Bible that occurred before Jesus came, and it contains the history of God's chosen people, which now includes us. And so their story is now our story from the very beginning of creation. But I have to ask, do most modern-day believers know their own story? I wonder how many of us even knew who Hezekiah was before this series. I'd be willing to bet at least half had no clue. And if you think that's just because you're new to the whole church scene, think again. People who have been in church their whole lives don't know this stuff. He does know that's why we're here, right? Yes, yes, good. All right. I'm glad to hear it. Glad you're here for that, that you want to know because knowing the Bible is not just good for impressing friends and looking good in a Sunday school class or Bible study. Knowing the Bible is good for helping you have a better life. A few thousand years ago, the prophet Hosea told us that the people perish for lack of knowledge. And his words are still true today. People actually perish for lack of biblical knowledge. But pastor, the Old Testament is just really hard to read. Okay, some of it is hard to read. I'll give you that. The book of Judges is really, really tough for me personally. All of those genealogies and places like Numbers and all the intricate laws about the sacrificial system, all the blood and guts in Leviticus, and there are other things that are simply not enjoyable to read, I know. Maybe you'll need the help of a good commentary for some of those parts. But listen, the stories, the wonderful stories of the Old Testament are filled with almost obvious application for our lives as God's people. We ought to at the very least know the stories. And more importantly, we ought to know the overarching story, the meta-narrative of God and His people, our people. That said, one of the most important things to help you really get what God wants you to get from any particular story in the Bible is context. You ought to have in your head an outline or a basic timeline of how all the stories flow together biblically and historically. That's why we've been working on this outline together. And that's why we're going to walk through it one last time. If you're new, please just observe and feel free to make fun of the rest of us. We don't mind. So here we go, church family. You can do this. Okay, this is going to be your last chance. All right? Come on. Come on. Got to come out of your shells. If you say the wrong answer, you'll be everyone else. Lots of people say the wrong answer. It's okay. Just try. Let's try. That's all I'm asking. This is the last chance. Here we go. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us about creation. creation. Chapter 3, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the first murder. Chapter 5, genealogy is a little boring sometimes. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the flood. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood. What is that? What's that about? A promise of God. Right. Just wanted to remind you. Chapter 10, again, genealogies. Chapter 11, the tower of Babel, chapter 12, the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will 
show you and I will make you a great and mighty nation. I will make your name great and I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. So Abraham packed his bags and he and his family went up around the fertile crescent and they came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. Wow, I almost forgot that one after all this time. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a problem because they, 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they were getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. So Jacob, aka Israel, had how many sons? Twelve sons, ten fingers, two earlobes. The second youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage and sent him down to Egypt. I can't help it. Walk like an Egyptian. All right. And sent him down to Egypt where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land and Joseph's whole family moved down to Egypt for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After the Pharaoh died and then Joseph died, there was a very, uh, there was a new Pharaoh and he didn't like Joseph's family, which had become very large by this time. So he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive and the people began to cry out to God saying, I love hearing that. Anybody else? I mean, we have these moments, right? God, get us out of this mess. All right. So God called a man named Moses and told him to go to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? 10 plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. The last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. Next, Moses gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and on up to Mount Sinai where God gave them the 10 commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? 12 spies who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. 10 leaders came back and said, no go. But two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the 10 leaders. And as a group, they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everybody 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount Nebo. 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 In case after all this time, someone hadn't gotten that yet. Nebo. Yeah, you got it. Okay. Where Moses died and a new leader was selected. We'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the 
judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges, God give us a king. The first king was Saul. The second king was David. And the third king was Solomon. They all ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was that used to be the hardest one. Now everybody knows it. And the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were how many tribes in the north? Ten tribes in the north. And how many in the south? Two tribes in the south. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. There were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. And there were eight good kings in the south. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came down to Judah and conquered them and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. 70 years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king sent three leaders back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were it's kind of hard that the first one starts with a Z, right? We just rebel against that. Z should come later. Zerubbabel, who rebuilt the temple. And the second one was Ezra, who helped reestablish uh, worship. And then Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple, Zerubbabel. They reestablished corporate worship, Ezra. And then they rebuilt the, the wall. Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was? This one is chronological. It's the last one in your Bible. Malachi in the Old Testament. And he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst onto the scene prophesying about Jesus Christ saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You guys have really learned that. Good job. Way to go. All right. So that's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Now let's think about where in this story we've been hanging out lately. In this series, we've talked about a good king from the southern kingdom of Judah named Hezekiah, who reigned just after the northern kingdom had been conquered by the Assyrians. And then we rewound to a story of a bad king from the northern kingdom named Jeroboam, who was actually the one who led the people of the north to rebel, ushering in the divided kingdom in the first place. Today, we will fast forward several hundred years to a generation or two after the southern kingdom had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. As many have guessed, I'm sure, both this week and next week, we're going to talk about a beautiful queen named Esther. Esther. Good guess. Now, we found a story of Jeroboam in the book of 1 Kings. We found the story of Hezekiah in the book of 2 Kings. Where do you think we're going to find the story of Esther? Well, that'll be in the book of Esther. Yeah, that's, 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 she got a whole book named for her. All right, so first, let's think some more about where Esther found herself within the history of our people. Remember, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar took many of the Jews from Jerusalem back to Babylon, where they lived for at least 70 years, and some for much longer. So, who was Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he was the last of the Babylonian kings. His empire was eventually conquered by the Persians who held the most powerful empire on earth until Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered them much later. Now, the king of Persia who conquered Babylon and then stayed there to rule was named Cyrus. 
He established a policy of sending people who had previously been deported to Babylon back to their homelands. That was great news for the Jews. Cyrus was the one who sent Zerubbabel and thousands of Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and settle there. Any Jew who wished could return to Judah at that time. However, because of the costs and dangers involved, and probably because some of them were prosperous right where they were, uh, many did not choose to return until later, and some never did. By the way, if you remember the story of Daniel or of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys were there in Babylon during the same time period when power was shifting from the Babylonians to the Persians. These guys were involved in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar and probably of Cyrus, and Daniel was still very involved with even the next king of Persia who was named Darius. Now, Darius actually stopped the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem for a while, but later he changed his mind and allowed it to continue. So keep in mind that all of what I just mentioned happened just before the time of Esther. Now, if you look at your listening guide, you see a little chart there to help with this. The four Persian uh, emperors there, Cyrus, in 559 to 530, conquered King Nebuchadnezzar. Established a policy returning the exiles, sent Zerubbabel to Jerusalem. Darius came next in 522, stopped construction of the temple, and then restarted it. Daniel was a lot in Darius. Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, 486, this was Esther's husband, we're going to learn about. Allowed the Jews to protect themselves against Haman's attempt to eliminate their people. And then Artaxerxes, 465, and he's the one that had Nehemiah as his cupbearer and allowed both Ezra and Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem. So again, after Darius, the next Persian king was Xerxes, and his reign was the time period of today's story regarding Esther. This true story begins in 483 BC, just over 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar's original captivity of the Jews. And with now, many Jews had already returned to their homeland around Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, Judah. Esther, though, and other Jews in the story had not been able or were not yet willing to return home. Now, if I were to read aloud the whole story of Esther, as Orthodox Jews do in their annual celebration of these events, it would take a very long time. So I won't do that today. But I would encourage you to read through it on your own uh, before next Sunday. Again, where do you find the story of Esther? Esther. Esther, yeah. Esther happens to be one of my favorite stories in the Bible. So rather than a typical sermon complete with points and subpoints, as I often have. I'm simply going to retell the story of Esther, sort of in my own words, and even though I'll be paraphrasing, remember that this is a true story straight out of the Bible. Before I tell the story, though, I want to remind you of one more thing. Remember what we talked about earlier in this series. New Testament Scripture teaches us that we, too, have been grafted into the house of Abraham. As the Apostle Paul put it, we Gentile believers are like a branch taken from a wild olive tree and grafted into the domesticated olive tree that was already there in a remnant of faithful, believing Jewish people. Another picture the Bible gives us of how we are brought into the family of God is that of adoption. Regardless of the metaphor, the point is that by faith in Jesus Christ, you and I have become a very real part of God's chosen family. For the record, those Jews by birth who have rejected the Messiah, are not God's children and have been utterly cut off from the tree, the family of God, even as we have been grafted in. This is a hard thing. But you need to be aware that unbelieving Jews are no longer a part of the family of God. And apart from repentance and faith in Christ, 
they will suffer the exact same wrath of God as every other unbeliever on the planet. No one will be saved apart from faith in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. No one. All of God's promises are for those who trust in Christ. Those who ignore or reject him will not be spared, regardless of ethnicity. I might say to you, if you're not a Jew and you haven't trusted in Christ, if it's true that they're not going to be there, what does it mean for you? I mean, it's even, you know, it's even more sobering. Those who ignore or reject Christ will not be spared, regardless of ethnicity. Right now, though, I really uh, want you to embrace the fact that these Old Testament stories are not just stories about other people in other places. This is actually your story. That is, if Jesus is your Savior. If so, then the story of Esther is part of your family history. This beautiful Queen Esther is one of your spiritual ancestors. You can embrace her as a spiritual foremother. It's okay to fall in love with Esther and to begin to actually care about what happened to her because she was a courageous, brilliant, and beautiful progenitor to us all, a woman of faith who played a significant role in our spiritual history. She saved the Jewish people, our people, from utter annihilation by single-handedly putting a stop to what would have been genocide. And so in a certain way of thinking, if not for Esther, although I realize God would have found another way, we could say that Jesus and every other Jew from Esther's day forward would have never been born. Put simply, God used Esther to keep hope alive for us all. In the story of Esther, there's one very clear theme. And I've made it the title of this message, which is simply this. God has a plan for his children. You're going to get tired of hearing me say that today, but I don't care. I'm going to keep saying it until it soaks in all the way into your soul. This might be one of the most important spiritual truths that any believer could ever come to truly believe. So here we go. Once upon a time, when many of our spiritual ancestors were still living in the foreign country of Babylon, while it was occupied by Persia, there lived a young lady named Esther. Esther was strikingly beautiful. She had the kind of beauty that came from within, nor was her beauty diminished without. Indeed, Esther, or Hadassah in Hebrew, was quite a tribute to God's most beautiful creation, women. Okay, I took a little liberty there, but you get the idea. The Bible does actually say she was uncommonly hot. <laughs> and let it be understood that God can absolutely use a woman's beauty if she is surrendered to him. If you don't think God can use a woman's beauty, well, you're wrong. God is the one who gives beauty. God is the one who gives beauty. And let's be honest, he gave more to some than others. And so listen very carefully. When he does that, there's a reason for it. I'll say that once more. When God makes a woman exceptionally beautiful, there's a reason for it. Some beautiful young lady here today needed to hear that. There's a reason for your beauty and not an Instagram reason, but a godly reason. Now, Esther's parents had died and she had been adopted by her elder cousin named Mordecai. Wait, this queen-to-be was adopted? That's right. The woman who did the most for the people of God, possibly prior to Mary, the mother of Jesus, was adopted? Yep. Good to remember. She was adopted by her elder cousin, Mordecai, who held a position in the place of the king of Persia, which at that time was located in the city of Susa. There was a reason 
Mordecai had this position. There was a reason beautiful Esther found her home with Mordecai. God has a plan for his children. Mordecai and Esther were descendants of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of our spiritual father, Abraham. Though Esther was beautiful and of marrying age, she remained unmarried, something quite out of the ordinary in the Jewish culture. We don't know any special reason why she had remained unmarried into adulthood, but we do know this. God has a plan for his children. The name of the king for whom Mordecai worked was Xerxes. Extra-biblical accounts have him as one of the more powerful kings of ancient history. Over the course of time, events occurred that just happened to leave this powerful king in need of a new queen. His advisor suggested that all the empire be searched so that from the most desirable women to be found, the king could choose his queen. Now, I doubt that God was fond of this kind of approach to marriage. But the Bible does say that their plan was super appealing to Xerxes himself, to which I say, uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they put the plan into effect. And one of the beautiful women who was discovered was Esther. Those searching we're proud to have discovered such a gem, but we know the real reason she was found. You want to say it with me? God has a plan for his children. The man who was to care for the women at the king's palace was named Hege. Now, I hope everybody can just loosen up a little bit today as I have a little bit of fun with this. I'm not really sure if Hege is how it was pronounced in Persia, but the name is spelled H-E-G-A-I. So it's either Hegai or Hege, based on the context. Okay, in all seriousness, this guy had been made a eunuch, which is a practice God condemned in such places as Deuteronomy 23. God condemned it. But this person was made a eunuch so that there would be no temptation for, the Bible says this, so that there would be no temptation for him as he cared for the most beautiful women in the world. No temptation. He gay. Come on, come on, come on, y'all, come on. You have to at least chuckle with me on that one. Hege, or Hegai, was a trusted servant to King Xerxes, and Esther found great favor in his eyes. He treated her very well and gave her special attention and advice. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, partially because of this man's work, Xerxes chose Esther out of all the other women, not to just be one of his wives, but to be his queen. All because of Hege or Hegai. So read the story and you'll see it's absolutely true that God even had a plan for this eunuch. My point is that God can and will even use a eunuch, even though he never should have been made a eunuch in the first place. You can't make this stuff up. Meanwhile, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, came upon an opportunity to act in a godly way and to show loyalty to King Xerxes. He overheard a conversation between two guards who were putting, uh, plotting to assassinate the king. Now, only a select few people could talk to the king, the Persian king. They had these protocols that were strict, and um, 
If anybody but those certain people talked to him, they would be killed. And so Mordecai may not have previously had any way to warn Xerxes. But now because his cousin Esther had become queen, Mordecai was able to get word to him through her. Hence the evil plot was foiled. At that time, Mordecai was not rewarded for his great deed. And he received no recognition. He must have wondered why. Don't you think? Ever been there? Ever felt like nobody noticed your works? God has a plan for his children. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted an evil man named Haman to be his prime minister. Haman was second in command only the king. He began to demand that the people bow before him. Remember when we talked about, about bowing and how that's worship? Demanded that people bow before him. As he, as he walked by. And you know, when human leaders made themselves out to be like God, it was always a problem for our spiritual ancestors. People like Mordecai. Remember Daniel's den of lions? Remember the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those things had recently happened, relatively recently. Mordecai knew those stories, probably better than we do. And now it was his turn to take a stand for God. So when Haman walked by, he did not bow. Let me tell you something. As we get into the end times, these days may come. Haman became furious at Mordecai and the Jewish nation which he represented. The Bible indicates that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites, a pagan and cruel people, sworn enemies of the Jews. And so in one of the single most atrocious acts of racism in the history of mankind, Haman decided that not only should Mordecai be, be punished, but all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire should be killed, men, women, and children. That would have included the ones already sent back to Judah, by the way. Still part of the Persian Empire. This is the kind of power Haman normally enjoyed. The power to wipe out nations. But in his arrogance, he didn't realize that God has a plan for his children. So Haman went forward with his plot. He persuaded the king to rubber stamp the plan. And the Bible says it happened like this. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatchers were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman set down a drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Being a court official, Mordecai, I wonder how he happened to be a court official. Mordecai knew of the plan in advance. He began to pray and seek the Lord with all his heart. And he went to his cousin, the queen, whom he had raised like a daughter. And now it becomes clear that Esther has not yet uh, revealed her nationality to the king. Mordecai advised her not to, in fact, and she had obeyed his advice. So neither the king nor his officials knew that she was one of our people the people of Yahweh God. Esther probably could have remained anonymous and survived, but she didn't choose that path because she understood God has a plan for his people. 
for his children. Mordecai got a message to young Queen Esther saying this, don't think for a moment you will escape there in the palace when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. What's more, who can say but that you have been elevated to the palace for just such a time as this? To which Esther replied, you think? <laughs> no, actually, with much dignity, Esther texted Mordecai back, and she said with a stern face emoticon, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, something to note there. Maybe we'll go further with that next week. Though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I am willing to die. So Mordecai went away and did as Esther told him. Wow, Queen Esther truly is one of the greatest heroes of our faith. See, people didn't just go into the king of Persia, not even the queen. The law was clear that any person who went to see the king unbidden was absolutely to be put to death on the spot unless the king held out his scepter as a symbol of grace, of mercy. And that was not normally done because it was frowned upon by his subjects as a sign of weakness. Power in those days was maintained mostly by fear and violence. Also, the Persian method of governing was all about following protocol. Everything had to be done in a certain way. This was a matter of national pride and a huge part of their culture. It was simply forbidden to come to the king's court unless he called you, even if you were the queen. Obviously, the king of Persia did not embrace a Judeo-Christian view of marriage wherein a husband and wife are to be as one. No, not at all. And so be assured that Esther absolutely risked her life coming into the court unbidden. And for the record, we really don't have any indication in Scripture that there was all that much romance between the two of them at this point. Besides, Xerxes had recently discarded Queen Vashti, the last queen. So I don't really think Esther had a lot of reason to believe she would survive her breach of protocol. And now we begin to see that Esther was not just another pretty face. She was also sharp as a tack. She was smart enough to save her real request for a private meeting. After the king surprisingly pardoned her disobedience to a serious law, she invited him to a banquet where she planned to make a case for the lives of her people, our people. Esther had no reason to believe she would be spared, but she was a valiant young woman who used her courage, her beauty, and her brains for the purposes of God, even at the risk of her own life. She knew it was for such a time as this that she had been made queen. She understood what we so often forget, that God has a plan for his children. Later, though, through a couple of, and through a couple of different meetings, Esther explains everything to King Xerxes. Not in, uh, incidentally, it would seem, she actually did begin to develop a relationship with her husband at this point, which might be a subplot and one of the ways... God continued to impact another culture through his people because in the end, not only were the Jews not killed, but they received great favor from Persia going forward. As mentioned, the next king in light even allowed them to rebuild Jerusalem, walls and all. In the story, one of the great moments when Esther shows her brilliance, not just her beauty, is in reminding Xerxes of Mordecai's previous act of loyalty, the loyalty that had saved the king's life from the hands of insurrectionists, the loyalty that had not been rewarded previously 
She also explained the ethnic jealousy behind Haman's plot to kill the Jews. And she told the king, frankly, uh, finally, that she was actually a Jew herself. By the way, just as an aside, how we present information to people and in what order can really make a big difference in how it is received. Also key, waiting for the right moment. I could actually do a whole message on the wisdom of Esther. In the end, the king becomes angry about how he has been led astray. And in one moment, Haman not only loses his position as second in command, but he finds himself hung on the very gallows that had been built for Mordecai, who was then actually elevated to the position of prime minister, replacing Haman. This man of God who had refused to bow was now given a position of great influence and power within the most powerful empire of the day, much like Daniel before him and Moses before him and Joseph before him and others. But in all of those cases, there was a time. There was a time, sometimes extended periods of time, when it sure didn't seem like things were going their way. It sure didn't seem like God was on their side at all. Still, all of them seemed to have faith that God would bring things around, and he did in each case because, together, God always has a plan for his children. One more time, God always has a plan for his children. Mordecai was even able to pass laws that gave our spiritual ancestors great freedom and success in the Persian Empire from that point forward. In fact, the Bible says many foreigners became believers in the God of Abraham during that period of time. Something God had always wanted to happen, though his people had previously been, we might say, less than evangelistic. There are so many parallels to the church today. One could make the case that this changed for the next generation after Esther, and many Persians became followers of Yahweh. Maybe that's even the biggest purpose behind the whole story. We should not be unaware also that because God used Esther to save our people from annihilation, an annual festival was instituted, which is called Purim. As mentioned earlier, the festival is jubilantly celebrated by traditional Jews even to this day. Part of the celebration is the public reading of the book of Esther in its entirety. And interestingly, children are given noisemakers, which they use to cover up the name of Haman every time it is read. Let's be something. Wouldn't that be fun to experience? You know, can we just be a fly on the wall? You know, mm. The impact of people like Esther and Mordecai, even in the foreign land of Persian-occupied Babylon, they were missionaries. Sometimes I feel like we're missionaries in our own country now. Amen? The impact lasted for many centuries. In fact, the wise men who brought gifts and came to worship Jesus some 500 years later were likely Persian kings or advisors themselves. Why, how did they know? Why, why did they come? Who were they looking for? Why were they looking for anyone? Impact for centuries. And so I'll say it one last time. God has a plan for his children. If you're a child of God, then God has a plan for you. I hope you believe that. Are you a child of God? Have you been grafted into the house of Abraham, the chosen family of God? If not, listen to this scripture. But to all who believed Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. 
This is not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. This rebirth comes from God. That is the gospel. You can become a child of God. You can be grafted in today. Have you believed in Jesus, the Messiah? Have you accepted him by faith? He is the savior of his people, Israel, which now includes all of those who believe in him. So is Jesus a savior to you? Have you asked him to be your savior and your Lord? If so, you are now a child of God. If not, why not do it today? The Bible says this to those who have received Christ. Now you, now you who are not Jewish, are not foreigners or strangers any longer, but are citizens together with God's holy people. You belong to God's family. And this, his unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave him great pleasure. Because of Jesus, you can become part of God's family. And as a child of God, you can begin to understand and live out his plan for you. You know, it's interesting that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once does the name of God make it into the story. A whole book in the Bible. And yet our Lord is so clearly evident in nearly every paragraph. It is so obvious in the book of Esther that God is orchestrating this whole story. And you see, that is how God works most of the time. Still today, isn't it? God doesn't usually show up in some obviously supernatural way, does he? I mean, rare are the times when angels appear. Rare are the burning bush moments, but rather God mostly works through people and circumstance, just as he did in the story of Esther. Maybe God has even worked through this humble preacher today and also by simply getting you into this room. All to remind you that he has a plan. Yes, even for you. Next week, we're going to apply some very specific lessons regarding God's plan that we can learn from the book of Esther. But right now, I just want to lead you in a time of prayer. And those who want to become children of God by grace through faith in Christ may silently pray along with me. This, is, this prayer time is intended to guide you to receive adoption into the family of God by placing your faith in His Messiah, Jesus Christ. You can pray something along these lines with me. I put my faith in Jesus today. I believe He's the Savior. I want Him to be my Savior. Save me. Give me rebirth into Your family, God. I don't know what all that means. But today I take step one. Take my life. I want to see your plan. I'm done with mine. I surrender. Just, just say that to him in your heart. I surrender. You 
I repent. I turn. I turn away from me. And I turn away from my sin. And all of my ways and my selfishness. And I just turn to you, Jesus. Take my life. Take my heart in your hands. Mold me. I want your plan from now on. God's word says that if we come by faith in Christ, he has already died for you. You were chosen before time and eternity. He knew you before you were born. He knew you. He knew you would be one of his. Maybe today someone, someone has decided it today. Maybe, maybe God worked in your heart and you said yes today. I hope so. And I hope you let me know. So I can celebrate with you and so I can just tell you about next steps in your walk with Christ. Lord, thank you for these stories. Thank you that we are part of the family. What a privilege. What an incredible privilege. And we just read that it gives you great pleasure to bring us in. When you signed the adoption papers for me, for so many others in this room, you had great joy. Thank you, Lord. Your love for us is beyond our understanding. We can't understand it because we know that we're sinners and we know we haven't lived for you and we know that we don't think about you enough and all of these things and we, we can't understand how you could love us. But Lord, I pray that today those believers and, and new believers and even those who, who maybe haven't decided yet, Lord, I pray every person in this room would just in this moment see how big your love is by understanding Jesus on the cross with his arms spread wide open, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He gave his life a ransom for many. Were you one of the many? Or did you become one of the many in, in, in a sense today? For the first time? He knows you. He knew you would come. And he's rejoicing. Thank you, Lord, for being our Savior and our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.